0: Well, good morning. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn Oak Forest. Last week, we finished our sermon series through the book of Esther. And next week, uh, the Advent season will start. So this week is a standalone um, sermon. If you didn't gather from the readings, our topic today is money. So if you're like me, you're maybe cynically wondering why exactly we're talking about money. Um, Every December— Sojourn has a giving campaign in the season of Advent, and you're going to hear more about that soon. Um, total coincidence, the sermon was not actually intended to butter you up for that, but that may be, may be a side effect, um, and that'd be okay. Um, why then? One reason um, to preach about money is that we live in a consumer economy. Politicians, social media platforms, and every company with a product to sell all agree They want us to spend more money. They want you to buy more stuff so that other people can have more money, and they can afford to buy more stuff, which will strengthen the economy so that we can all buy more stuff. Our society is so wrapped up in spending that you might say that we're addicted to it. For most addictions, the first step to treatment is to get away from the thing that we're addicted to. The trouble with money is that we can't do that. Short of moving to a monastery, you can't get through a day without spending or earning money. So if we can't avoid money, and money has so much influence on us and on our society, we need to learn to steward it. We need to consider what the Bible says about money and let that shape us and drive our behavior, not our pride or our fear or our desire for a quick rush from buying something nice. So we'll begin in Ecclesiastes 5. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his own hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. Just as he came, so shall he go, and what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Solomon says that money that we don't steward well actually hurts us. Paul has a similar message in First Timothy. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Solomon and Paul are not telling us to moderate our love for money. They're telling us that to pursue wealth for its own sake and to steward it poorly is a tragedy. It's not just a tragedy for people who could have been helped, but weren't. It's a tragedy for the person pursuing that wealth in the first place. Paul says it will plunge us into ruin and destruction. So this is why Jesus says in Matthew 6.24 that you can't serve God and money. One, to serve one leads to life abundant, and to serve the other leads to destruction. So what does it mean to serve money? Later in Matthew, a rich young man asks Jesus, What good deed must I do to have eternal life? At the end of their exchange, Jesus tells him, Sell all you possess, give to the poor, and follow me. It says that the man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, God doesn't ask all of us to give all that we have to the poor, but he did ask this man, and it was too high a price. He served money rather than God, and his story is a warning to the rich among us. The thing is that most people don't actually believe themselves to be rich, so that may not be all that convicting. The median income in this zip code is in the top 1% in the world, so our perspective may be a little bit skewed. Regardless, it's possible to not be rich and to still serve money rather than God. As Kanye West puts it, having money is not everything, not having it is. So regardless of how rich you do or don't feel, we can all repent and grow when it comes to how we steward our money. Now, Jesus doesn't say that you can't have both God and money. Solomon doesn't condemn the rich. He says, "Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept His lot and rejoice in His toil, this is the gift of God. Paul doesn't condemn the rich either. In our passage from First Timothy, he says, "As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God." who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share. So the message from Solomon, from Paul, and from Jesus, they're all the same. Be content with what you have, enjoy it, and share it. Be content, joyful, and generous. Underneath all these, though, is gratitude. Theologian Karl Barth says, gratitude follows grace, as thunder follows lightning. The grace that we have received in Christ is the ultimate act of generosity. We were enemies of God, and now we're welcomed as family of God because of the generosity of Christ. Second Corinthians 8 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, that you by his poverty might become rich. So as Barth said, we respond to these newfound riches with gratitude. That gratitude leads to contentment, it produces joy, and it breeds generosity. So how do we serve God over money? We practice gratitude. Be grateful in your contentment with what God has provided. Be grateful as you enjoy his gifts, large and small. And be grateful as you generously share those gifts. There's a reason that gratitude and generosity are two of our values here at Sojourn Oak Forest. So I'm going to talk a little bit more specifically about the things we can actually do with money, and I'll start with spending. Frugality, it seems to me anyway, is treated like the great Christian virtue when it comes to money. Frugality is good, but Jesus never actually teaches people to be more frugal. I'll give three reasons why it's good to be frugal— But in each case, it's a means to something greater. Frugality is not really the point. Number one, frugality is good because it forces us to do without things, gives us an opportunity to practice contentment. Number two, frugality frees up more resources to be hospitable, to be generous, and to invest for the future. And number three, frugality reminds us that our hope is not here in earthly gain and pleasure, Solomon repeats throughout Ecclesiastes that all the things that money can buy are vanity or vapor. They're fleeting pleasures that can never fully satisfy us. So by all means, we should be prudent in how we spend money. And we shouldn't spend money like we're trying to create our own heaven here on earth. But more than frugality alone, our spending should be marked by contentment and gratitude. In Ecclesiastes 3, Solomon says, I perceived that there was nothing better than for them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. If you think of Ecclesiastes as sort of a hopeless and depressing book, this might be a surprise. Here, Solomon is telling us to enjoy what money can buy. Christians, of all people, should be the most joyful about the things that we have. No doubt there are limits, but if we eat a good meal, if we go on a vacation, the response should be gratitude. We shouldn't have guilt over those, and we shouldn't be looking forward to something better that we wish that we had. So in our spending, we're called to contentment. Contentment isn't a lack of ambition, it's not apathy. Contented heart is primarily a grateful heart. So whether we get the promotion or don't, we're content because God has provided us with our daily bread. When we wish that our house was bigger, it had better finishes, we can be content because we're grateful for the roof over our heads. The next thing that we can do with money is we can save it. And we just talked about contentment, being grateful for what you have. You could ask the question, why would we ever bother to save in the first place? Some people would say that you shouldn't. You should just trust God for your provision. I don't agree with that. I think, to put it simply, we trust God to provide what we need, but sometimes God is providing for tomorrow today. Proverbs 6 says, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. So here scripture is telling us to save for the future, but there are warnings attached. The first warning is against accumulating wealth and possessions just for the sake of having them. Jesus tells a parable about a rich man with so much grain that his barns couldn't hold all of it. So he built bigger barns, naturally. The man says, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat drink, and be merry. Now Jesus ends up condemning this man because he ends up dying and all that grain did him no good at all. The second warning is against wasting what's been entrusted to us by failing to invest it well. In the parable of the talents, Jesus tells the story of a man who goes on a journey and he entrusts some of his money to three of his servants. The first servant gets a lot of money, five talents of gold. The second gets three talents The third gets just one. When the man returns, each of the first two men have traded and they've doubled the money that their master gave them. But the third put his money in a hole in the ground. The master rebukes that third servant for not stewarding the money that he was entrusted with, for not growing it. Now, to be clear, this parable isn't only about managing money, and I'm not going to go into a full meaning here. But God is the master in the parable, and he has entrusted each of us with resources. And as stewards, it's our job to do something with them, to grow them, to employ them to make our master's kingdom come. So we all know that we can waste money by spending it foolishly, but we can also waste money by doing nothing with what we've been given. So based on these two parables— Jesus warns against simply accumulating money for its own sake. For that reason, I would argue it's actually better to talk about investing than saving. Our primary focus should be on what will make the greatest impact. And it won't be a bigger pile of cash just sitting around. So, start a business, invest in your child's education, invest to free up your time later in life, Have an impact and make a legacy, leave a legacy, excuse me. Most of all, don't waste what God has given you. This world will be blessed if God's people have resources and influence. We just spent a sermon series learning about Esther and Mordecai, who did just that. But that'll only happen if we're willing to use those resources for the advancement of God's kingdom and the good of our world. So when you invest, don't do it so that you can build more barns to hold your grain. In more modern terms, invest, but don't do it just so you can see your account balance grow. Finally, I'll talk about giving. Our gospel reading this morning started with, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So today we're all sitting in a tangible example of just that. This building is here today. Because faithful men and women invested in their local church for decades before most of us were even born. This building has seen marriages, baptisms, funerals, and countless times of ordinary worship. Those generations of saints before us truly did lay up treasures in heaven. Their giving has made impacts that stretch beyond their own lifetimes. Now they're blessing this congregation. So giving, both to the local church and to other ministries, is a way that we lay up treasures in heaven. Our giving bears fruit in people's lives. We may see that fruit, or it may be born in a generation or more from now. But it also bears, give, it also bears fruit in our hearts today, in our lives. Generous giving is a way that we can war against our own natural love of money, of comfort, and security. When we give, we practice not loving money, as Jesus warned against. We practice having less, which trains us and disciples our hearts towards contentment. So by living generously, we're not just talking about giving money away. It could also be fostering a child, supporting a family who does, buying groceries for a friend in need, or even just having a neighbor over for dinner. Most of us have some natural anxiety about giving money away. It's sort of simple math. Whatever I give away, I will have that much less. But consider Psalm 112, which we read earlier. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. So generosity comes from grateful trust in the Lord, giving that's rooted in that trust produces joy rather than anxiety over having less. We get a good example of this in 2 Corinthians 8. tells the story of a poor church in Macedonia, eager to give to the church in Jerusalem. Paul says, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. See that you excel in this act of grace also. So here's a church that, in Paul's words, is severely afflicted and extremely poor, yet they begged earnestly for the opportunity to give. We can probably all agree that's admirable, maybe even unbelievable. This sort of generosity and faith in God's provision is only possible through the work of the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul calls it an act of grace. Generous giving is an act of grace, and Paul is calling each of us to grow in it. The question is, where do we give, and how much? Scripture is consistent in two types of giving. The first is to the church. Malachi 3 says, Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house." The local church is God's house, and when we give in support of it, we keep that house in this neighborhood. We make sure there is a physical presence of God's kingdom in Sojourn Oak Forest. We also believe that the local church is the way that God's people grow in depth and number. It's the tool that Jesus chose to carry out his mission. The money that we give to the church speaks powerfully about how we personally feel about the value of the church. The second type of giving in scripture is giving to the poor. Deuteronomy fifteen eleven says, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Last week, we heard about an example of this in the feast of Purim, where the Jews celebrated God's salvation from Haman's genocide with a feast and by caring for the poor. As the church, we're called to care for the poor, to welcome the outsider, and to responsibly steward the church's resources. As individual Christians, it's pretty much the same, to care for the poor, to be hospitable, to fund the ministry of the local church. So we can do that by supporting ministries like Star of Hope, Help Feed the Homeless, Fostering Family, or the Oak Forest Foster Closet, which we host here, and you can give to the, the local church. There are plenty of great places to give our money. But even so, we have many reasons not to give. Some of us are skeptical of the church. We hesitate to give to support it. Now, it's true that the church has always had its problems. But it's also true that when Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, he chose the church as the vehicle to carry on his work here on earth after he left. So there are reasons to be skeptical of human leaders, but there are few legitimate reasons not to support God's work. In Mark 12, Jesus praises a poor widow's generosity when she gives two copper coins to the temple. Now, at the time, church leaders, the temple leaders, were corrupt. Jesus spends a lot of his ministry pointing that out. Yet he praises this woman's gift. Her responsibility was to be faithful and generous toward God. God will bring about justice for corruption in his church. Now, some of us may not feel like we can afford to be generous. That may be true in some cases. The church is here to support the widow, the orphan, and the marginalized, not to be supported by them. But for most of us, it's like we say every week, We respond in gratitude by offering a portion of the fruits of our labors. The saying goes that giving should be an equal sacrifice, not necessarily equal amount. That means that those of us who have less should be expected to give a smaller portion of their income. But consider the poor Macedonian church that I mentioned earlier. Generosity is not only the job for the wealthiest among us. Many of us have been taught that good Christians give 10%, and that's pretty much the end of the story. So for those of us in that camp, I'll go back to Paul's encouragement from 2 Corinthians to grow in this act of grace. This means two things. One, that it's an act of grace. So if you perceive someone else's generosity doesn't measure up to your own standard, be gracious to them. Each of us has received abundant grace in Christ, and we are all learning to live generously in response to that grace. So don't make the mistake of the Pharisees by assuming your sacrifice is more pleasing to God than your neighbor's. Second, if we are to grow in generosity, giving 10% is not a destination. The person giving 10% of $50,000 may be much more generous than the person giving 10% of $200,000. If generosity has no impact on what you're able to afford... I challenge you again with Paul's words from 2 Corinthians. Grow in this act of grace. My prayer for Sojourn Oak Forest is that we would be marked by the same gratitude, the same abundant joy as the Macedonians, and that it too would overflow in a wealth of generosity. So to conclude, whether we're giving, saving, or spending, the money that we have is not our own. God has entrusted it to us. And it's ours to steward. So we ought to spend it wisely. We ought to enjoy it. We ought to share it. When we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, we aren't only praying for a spiritual kingdom where people will come to faith in Christ. God's kingdom is made up of real people with real needs, living in physical houses in a specific place. We all receive education, government, health care. Money makes all of that possible. So there's no aspect of our lives that isn't coming under the reign of King Jesus. He is Lord of all, including our bank accounts. So I pray that we would continue to grow in this act of grace, becoming an ever more grateful church, and let that gratitude make us more content, more joyful, and more generous with our money and with our lives. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you that you are a generous God. You have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ, and the grace we've been given could never be earned or repaid. Even more, you continuously sustain us with everything we need. Remind us of your grace and your generosity, and empower us to be gracious and generous with the gifts we've been given. We ask for wisdom in stewarding the gifts that you've entrusted to us. Grow our contentment, joy, and gratitude day by day. We ask that you would cause our gratitude to overflow into blessing for our neighbors. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.